this week's TribCast, we'll talk Sonny Dye, what did and didn't happen this legislative session, and the fate of embattled Texas Secretary of State David Whitley. But before we do, I'd like to thank our TribCast sponsors. Texas Children's Hospital. Join patient families and Texas Children's expert physicians on a journey to save lives. New episodes every Tuesday. Learn more at texaschildrens.org slash podcasts. And the Texas A&M University System. The Texas A&M System graduates more fully certified teachers than any other system. Consider becoming a teacher. Learn more at weteachtexas.org. Do I have to talk you in there Hello, this is Emily Ramshaw here on Tuesday, May 28th, the morning after Sonny Die with the Texas Tribune Tribcast, our weekly Texas politics and policy podcast. I'm joined this week by an all-female lineup, the best Tribcast lineup of the session so far. Uh, I'm here with reporter Aliyah Swaby. Hello. Hello, reporter Alexa Ura. Good morning. Good morning. And reporter reporter Emma Platoff. Happy birthday. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Uh, As always, we'll take questions from our listeners in real time on Twitter and Facebook. You can do it using the hashtag Tribcast. And speaking of our listeners, we'd love to know how you discovered the Tribcast and what you'd like to hear more of around here. Go to texastribune.org slash Tribcast survey, which is one word, to complete a very short survey about our podcast. We value your opinion and would love to hear from you if your feedback is positive. <laughs> okay, <laughs> ladies, uh, happy sunny day. I'm so sorry that you're here with me today instead of home sleeping off your hangovers. You all look pretty uh, bright-eyed, so we're in good shape here. Um, Alexa... Some sunny dies are super dramatic and go down to the wire. And yesterday we were all sunny done by like the middle of the afternoon. Mm-hmm. Um, was it drama free up until the end or were there some high drama moments, high stakes moments in the last few days? I th- in terms of Monday, it was very much so the tone that I think the leaders of both of the chambers would have wanted. The House, I mean, there weren't even any retirements on the floor. Sometimes you have folks announcing, I'm done, and it's tearful and emotional, and none of that actually even happened. We um, got one very long retirement in the <laughs> Senate. <laughs> yeah, Patsy's <Yeah. his> law. <laughs> Who's not actually retiring. <laughs> right, right. Um, but, you know, the, the real drama came Sunday night, um, if you can, you know, drama by the standards of this session, <laughs> in which lawmakers twice failed to pass legislation that would have extended the life of the, I'm going to get this wrong, State Plumbing Examiners Board. State Board of Plumbing Examiners. <laughs> what the hell is the State Board of Plumbing Examiners? The and what? state yeah. agency that um, <laughs> licenses plumbers and sort of enforces what used to be plumbing law, which will no longer exist after September because lawmakers were unable to pass this legislation. Why were they unable to pass this? And this is not the kind of legislation, legislation that, by the way, would like hold up a legislative session, but why, what was the deal? Well, so the... The board was under sunset review. They haven't actually completed a sunset review for it in like 16 years. They keep sort of putting it in the sunset safety net bill and then sort of kicking the can down the road to the next legislative session. They finally wanted to do it this year. The proposal was to move them to the Department of Licensing and Regulation, which oversees a bunch of other professions. Uh, Symphonia Thompson wanted to delay that by two years because the Department of Licensing and Regulation is up for sunset next session. Uh, Chris Patty, who's the vice chair of the Sunset Advisory Commission, said, don't worry, we have a scheduling bill. They're not going to be under review next year or next session. Um, 
when the bill went to conference, the Senate removed that. Symphonia Thompson was upset about it. And if Symphonia Thompson is upset about something, it doesn't get Exactly. <laughs> so it went up on the floor. At the first time it went up, Patty said, don't worry, this is in the safety net bill. If we don't pass this, nothing happens. And then about three hours later came back and said, actually, there is no safety net for this. And because of the way the legislation was written, we're going to lose the entire plumbing code altogether and the bill went down again in flames and so there was a weird thing where please let's say the bill was flushed <laughs> you know, I didn't Alexa. think I'd be writing about bathrooms yes, two sessions in a row Alexa finishes the session writing about bathrooms but there was this there was this weird thing where Patty had Basically, his safety net bill never was never finally passed. He never accepted the Senate amendments on it. There was no conference committee report on it. He technically could have discharged his conferees and let it pass with the Senate amendments, but he didn't actually do that. And so we are heading into a year in which the the state agency is going to start this like wind-down period, and as of September 1st, there will be no law that regulates plumbers. Hmm. All right. So well, hope none of us need some household fixes. You might want to do that <laughs> yeah. before September. Yeah. Uh, well, speaking of the uh, internal plumbing at the legislature, talk to us about David Whitley, the now former Texas Secretary of State, mm-hmm. who uh, obviously we all know the backstory there. Uh, and Alexa, you're reporting largely responsible for revealing the details of this botched voter review, voter roll review. We were waiting for him to either, you know, come up for a, a renomination or a re-confirmation uh, vote in the Senate uh, or nothing. What ended up happening yesterday? Yeah, so we were waiting, basically just waiting for Dan Patrick to gavel us out. Of course, there was this Patsy Palooza, as Emma called it, <laughs> in which they were honoring the Secretary of the Senate for Had to have a, a very know, long time. Uncontested election <laughs> and lasted several hours for the ceremonial position of Speaker Pro Tem. Yeah, I mean, so they kept dra- you know, this sort of was a drawn out process but basically, as soon as Dan Patrick would have gaveled the Senate out, he would have been out of a job because he wasn't confirmed by the Senate before the legislative session ended. Um, a co- I think it was about maybe 20 minutes before before Chuck Lindell from the Statesman tweeted out what was his resignation letter to Abbott, David, Whitley's, David resignation. Whitley's resignation letter, and then soon after Abbott accepted that resignation letter. So what does the resignation letter mean? That Whitley, there was basically no chance in the Senate that this was going to have, his confirmation was going to have the votes to pass? Yeah, I mean, I think it was pretty clear months ago that the Dems were not going to budge on this. There was one Dem, um, Eddie Lucio, who everyone sort of thought could be a possible flip. Unclear if he maintained his position against Whitley or not. But even without him, the Dems would have been fine if everyone was on the floor to block this nomination. Abbott kept saying, you know, I, anything could happen. We kept hearing from staffers and, and all these rumors about whether there was going to be a final play for it or not. I think the Dems were sort of twice quietly trying to get to sign die without any sort of drama on the floor. But, you know, they were taking attendance. Jose Menendez almost missed his kid's fifth grade graduation on Friday because he didn't want to risk being out because Eddie Lucio was also supposed to be out. Oh. And so their block would have been weakened at that point. And so, I, you know, I think this was pretty much over a couple of months ago. And the what is notable is that by choosing to resign on the last day of session, now Abbott can reappoint, can appoint someone else. 
uh, starting, you know, even today. And he could appoint, reappoint someone else who basically stays in that position until the next legislative session and takes away the legislature's ability to even vet that person. And mm -hmm. so, you know, I think from an optic standpoint on that front, you this idea of waiting until the end to resign when you knew your nomination was going to be blocked anyway. It's a gift to Abbott, basically. It's a yeah. gift to Abbott and, and takes away some of that oversight that the legislature does have in this case and that I think some Dems would argue is necessary given the last couple months. And so what happens to David Whitley now? I mean, you know, he's out of a job. He was, you know, uh, some some believe or would like us to believe he was the scapegoat for all of this. This was, He was being basically urged to do this from on high, this voter review, and now he's the one out of a job with a reputation that's, you know, in shambles. Yeah, I mean, the voter review was in the works before David Willey even got to the Secretary of State's office, but he presided over it. He allowed it to move forward. There were some serious mistakes in the data and continued to defend it. And, you know, during his confirmation hearing, wouldn't define voter suppression. And the SOS is the chief elections officer. And in a state like Texas, that sort of stuff is not going to help you get any sort of Dems on the fence to come over for you. Uh, but, you know, that said, he is a lawyer in a city that loves lawyers, both at the Capitol and in general. So we'll probably end up making a lot more money than he yeah, was making as Secretary think, of State. I think the private sector will probably kind be kind to him. Yeah. And he was a long top aide, a long time top ad, aide to Greg Abbott. And so I would not be surprised if he somehow found his way back into that office. Or at least got a very great reference letter from him. Indeed. So. Great. Well, Indeed. thank you, Alexa. Uh, all right. So, Aliyah, I want to know where we ended up on the must-pass uh, bill of the session. Uh, this was school finance reform. Um, obviously, there are a lot, a lot of different moving parts, but what are the sort of high notes if you were, um, when they promote this legislation, what mm -hmm. they accomplished, what are they touting? <clears throat> um, so I think... It would depend on the chamber. I feel like the Senate has been really uh, touting the $5.1 billion they were able to, able to get for property tax cuts, um, where it started at $2.7 billion, and they managed to find more money, at least for this biennium, to get that up to $5 billion. So Unclear. just before you move on, yeah. what does that mean for the average you know, So homeowner? they're saying that it would be um, an average of um, $0.08 cents decrease in the tax rate, um, in 2020 and then 13 in 2021. So if you are the owner of a 250K home, um, that would mean about $200 mm -hmm. to $300 in, in tax cuts a year. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and I'm sure a lot of people might not even see that depending on the value of your home. Um, and the way that these cuts work, if you have a home that's way more expensive, you'll see more cuts. Right. And so, the, um, so basically, they're underwriting some of the cost of lo the local pro property taxes that go to schools, so that local property home, uh, homeowners are not paying as much. Exactly. Okay. So that's the property tax piece. Right. Um, and on the education side, <laughs> that's uh, six point five billion dollars uh, for education, and that includes uh, mandated teacher raises. Though you know, most teachers will not see the five thousand dollars across the board raise that. Uh, the lieutenant governor promised at the, or, you know, said that he wanted at the Hope beginning for, of the session. Yeah, right. yeah. Um, most of them, I think, I think it, it will vary district to district in the way that it's set up. It's very, you, they have to use a percentage of the increase in revenue that they get on teacher raises and they have to prioritize teachers with more than five years of experience. Um, and, you know, there have been some averages thrown around, but because districts have discretion on how to offer them, you can't really do a statewide average mm -hmm. um, on how much those raises will be. 
Um, it does increase uh, per student funding by a good amount of money. It's about a thousand dollars, a thousand twenty. That's I mean student. that's significant money for across all of the schools in Texas. Yeah, definitely. I think you know if you ask education advocates at the beginning of a session, that's a lot of what they can agree on is you know just raise the basic allotment, just raise the base right. the base number per student, and everyone you know ends up a winner. Or at least every almost everyone ends up a winner. Um, and they sort of, you know, walked around it for a bit and then ended up um, increasing it by a significant amount. Um, and then it, what about pre-Ks? There's, there's a pre-K element here, right? Yeah, they're funding a full-day pre-K for eligible four-year-olds. Um, so it's not expand, it's not universal pre-K. Um, and eligible four-year-olds include, you know, your low income, your um, economically disadvantaged in some way. Um, and you can now have full day pre-K instead of half day as it was before. And then finally, uh, talk a little bit about what happens to Robin Hood. So, you know, obviously what's very controversial about how Texas schools are funded is that, you know, wealthier districts are responsible for helping to sort of underwrite, you know, poorer districts. How did that formula change the session, if at all? Um, So it changed in some technical ways, but essentially that's still going to happen. I think the main difference is um, you have those payments um, decreased by about, and close to $4 billion over the next two years. Um, and potentially that could increase in future years if they find the money to continue, <laughs> uh, you know, trying to, to lower those tax rates, um, which I think a lot of a lot of people, you know, it was a unanimous vote in both chambers, but I think the... Even Jonathan Stickland? Even Jonathan Stickland. All right. <laughs> but I think what you saw was some, um, like, concern from both Democrats and, uh, you know, the very, like, fiscal Republicans that um, how are we going to pay for this five years from now? That's actually, my big question. Yeah, like if I have you, yeah. this question on my list. Yeah. yeah well, <laughs> if, you, if you tout something as this, like, monumental change, we've yeah. been waiting for this, we don't have a court order hanging over our heads, blah, blah, blah. But, like, can something be that monumental and memorable if it's not financially feasible moving forward yeah <laughs> that's so a good question. question i mean how do we know whether it's financially feasible going forward i mean so this is this is a one-time you know infusion of cash or does this you know is this the new standard for sessions right. bienniums going forward so some of the places that they got the money were one-time infusions you know they um did some of the really complicated technical things with the formulas um, and that got them, you know, a couple billion dollars one time, like this biennium. And those couple of billion dollars will not be available um, next biennium. Um, and there are other uh, sources of revenue that they've um, found for um, a new fund to pay for property tax cuts uh, for school districts. Um, but it's unclear what else will go into that fund. You know, I think they had a lot of ideas and some of those ended up fizzling near the end. Um, and it's, yeah, I think, you know, they're sort of, letting the next legislature <laughs> figure out exactly how to fund Always it. Always a good decision. Uh, so, I mean, you obviously cover have covered public education issues super closely. In your opinion, is this landmark legislation? Is this game-changing legislation? You know, where does this legislation rank from, uh, you know, A to a D? Um, I don't know if I want to grade it <laughs> quite. <laughs> yeah, but reporter, come on. <laughs> I'm trying to keep it thematically appropriate. Thank you. Yep. Um, it's definitely big. I mean, it. I think, you know, a lot of people who know the school finance system well are now going to have to learn an entirely new school finance system mm-hmm. in some ways, you know, and, and figure out there. And there aren't that many people who know it very, very well, but you know, there are some of them and you'll have to learn that from scratch. I think it, it does change it in a lot of ways. Um, and even um, just increasing the base, um, 
you know, funding per student that hadn't changed in four years at all. And it had been stagnant for a decade. And so changing it by, I think it was a 20% increase. Um, the last time that they did it was more than 10 years ago, I think. Wow. So um, I think it's big. I don't know if you'll see, you know, especially with the questions about how they're going to fund it in the future, it's unclear if you're going to see drastic changes in academic performance for schools or, or you know, if, if even taxpayers are going to look at their bills and, you know, breathe a sigh of relief. Right. It's, I, I don't think that you'll see that happen, especially not as we go on, you know, in the next five or 10 years, values are still going to be rising likely and, and a lot of that might be washed out. Yep. Great. Thank you, Aaliyah. Uh, all right. Before our next topic, I'd like to thank two more TribCast sponsors, Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Texas. Want healthcare insights? Listen to the Blue Promise podcast hosted by Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Texas. Download it wherever you get your podcasts, standingwithtexas.com. And WGU Texas. Thousands of WGU Texas students are getting the opportunity to rewrite their stories thanks to our 21st century approach to higher education, competency-based learning. Learn more at texas.wgu.edu slash CBE. All right, we've talked about what did happen. Uh, Emma, let's break down what didn't happen. What are the big things that were on the list uh, that got close, 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 but no cigar? Well, um, aside from the plumbers, which we've discussed. <laughs> Incredibly important legislation. <laughs> Kind of notable ones for me, there were a number of priorities on Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick's sort of top 30 list that didn't make it all the way. And a number of those made it all the way through the Senate and died at the hands of the calendars committee in the House. So, you know, for most people, you can kind of consider the calendars committee to be an arm of the speaker's office, right? You put someone in this powerful calendar position who you kind of trust. So there were a few Dan Patrick priorities that died there. There's, you know, a sweeping elections bill that Republicans said was important for election security and a lot of Democrats worried, you know, would amount to voter suppression. Um, and that didn't make it that an example of something that died in calendars. That died right? in calendars. There was a so-called ban on a ban on so-called taxpayer funded lobbying, which died actually on the floor of the House in kind of a surprising vote. And what would that bill have done specifically? Uh, municipal leaders basically feared that it would have prevented them from with any taxpayer dollars kind of at the local level, sending someone to the legislature to advocate against something. So obviously- Which they all do, by the way. Which which right. they all do. <laughs> and which was kind of an important theme that we saw this session with local leaders, you know, from big cities and counties across the state coming and saying, hey, no, actually, you know, this, we have real concerns with this property tax bill. So n not being able to do that kind of on the city's dime when you work for the city would what have been- What dimes would you be using? to do that. I mean, you know, all these cities have hired hand lobbyists, so it seems like it would have made it very tricky to like, how else do you pay them? With right. A private, you know, or a pack or something. Yeah. A lot of, you know, that, that was a big thing for the Texas municipal league, obviously to shoot down. So that, that one died in the house. Um, a number of kind of socially conservative priorities. I think it's fair to say the Senate advanced this bill that would have made it more difficult um, nearly impossible in some cases for local governments to take down Confederate monuments. That never came up for a vote in the House, all these sorts of things. And it, it was interesting to me to look at things that made it onto the lieutenant governor's list of top 30 priorities, but died in the other chamber. And whether in this sort of session of kumbaya, that was something that had the potential to blow things up. Um, I had the opportunity to ask him about that this weekend. And he said, no, you know, I, I don't blame the speaker for those losses. If, if things don't come up for a vote on the floor of the House, that's it's often, you know, a function of what the membership wants. So that's a very a conciliatory different. That's tone. not what he was saying. <laughs> that's not what he said. Yeah, I mean, I just, 
and politically, that's so interesting because, as you said, like calendars is really an arm of the speaker, right? The speaker's will. And candidly, like, you know, the tenor of conversations in the House are largely, a convers- uh, uh, you know, attributable to how the speaker stands on something. And if he, like, really was going to the, you know, mat for some of these bills, they probably would have had a different outcome, right? I think that's, I think it's fair to say, you know, you can't really understate the uh, impact the speaker's view can have on members. I think you also can't overstate the impact of elections, right? You know, we're coming off a 2018 election year that was punishing for Texas Republicans. We're looking ahead to a 2020 election year that may be even more punishing for Texas Republicans. And there was a real emphasis all session on these kind of meat and potatoes, bread and butter, you know, pick your, <laughs> pick, pick your, your food, palette <laughs> eating your but. vegetables. You can do it for any direction. <laughs> I'm really so ready works, for all but. of these. To be yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> if Ross were here, he would talk about us falling off the turnip truck. So oh, right. God. <laughs> oh, no. that's why we're having an all women panel today. Yes, no turnip exactly. trucks. <laughs> yep. So, I mean, yeah, talk a little bit about, about the uh, impact of the election. So, I mean, is are people like Dan Patrick basically looking at the writing on the wall and saying, tw- you know, we saw what happened in 2018. Look at 2020. You know, we're worried about 2020. We have a potential redistricting fight ahead of us in 2021. Like, let's all just be on our best behavior and act like everybody's getting along, even if my priorities aren't getting through. I think it's fair to say that politicians pay close attention to their own elections. And if you're a statewide official whose margin, you know, between 2014 and 2018 decreased to a third of your winning margin, uh, I, I think that was kind of a wake up call. And if, especially if you're looking at suburban counties, you know, um, moderate Republican women who you think may be willing to vote against Trump and maybe vote against John Cornyn in 2020, you're thinking, do I want to spend my session passing heartbeat bills, you know, bans on abortion as early as six weeks when women don't know they're pregnant? Um, Or do I want to focus on things that my moderate suburban voters will care about, like schools and taxes? And I think the answer was pretty clear. I think what's interesting is if you think about the legislative session, not as six months when elected officials can, you know, help their constituents and do good things for them. But as, as some <laughs> of us might. Right? Yeah. <laughs> but instead of sort of what sets the tone for the upcoming elections, I think it was pretty clear that they were all looking to get that leadership was looking to give the members something to go home with to be able to run on. I don't know that that's going to be enough. Right. I mean, I think last last elections proved that a lot of politics is national. And despite whatever they might be saying, oh, look, we updated the funding formulas for school finance and we revamped this and we're saving you this much money. I think at the end of the day, Trump is going to be sort of looming over this entire election. And we saw 2018 not go in the direction the Republicans wanted. That was a totally different electorate than we usually see in midterms. And now we're going to see that combined with a more traditional presidential electorate. And I just I don't know that it's going to be enough for them. And so what does what I mean, does the 2020 election have even more significance than usual because of what happens at the legislature in 2021? Talk a little bit about talk a little bit about what's in store and what the redistricting process really means, what kind of tone that that sets for the next, you know, decade. Yeah, I I was not here for the last one. So I will preface. What were you in high school? (laughs) I was in my senior year of high school. (laughs) I knew it. (laughs) But, you know, I think what what I've heard from members and what I've read in 
court filings is that redistricting is really, really messy. There are all of these, um, you know, there's this like culture and feeling in the chambers. People are upset if they're going to be paired with someone and possibly lose their seats. There are concerns about the voting rights of people of color who are always responsible for the growth in the state and don't really get districts where they can control who gets elected. There are all these sort of competing constituencies in a redistricting year. And if the House gets a closer margin, if the House flips like the Democrats would like it to flip, it's going to be really, really messy. And from a congressional standpoint, that's really where I think you'll see the bigger effect because that's, the legislature has to do congressional redistricting. If they don't finish the state house stuff, it goes to the legislative redistricting board. So it's out of their hands anyway at the end. And but who's the, on that board? We were just discussing. That is the governor, the lieutenant governor, the speaker of the house, the AG, and the general land commission. What is Bush's official title? G- land yeah, commissioner. commissioner. The GLO. The head so of the most GLO. of that most board of are, is already locked in, we know, and it'll be right. mostly Republican. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, there's actually a huge incentive for the Democrats for it to have, for redistricting to happen effectively in the House and Senate because otherwise, but but Republicans would not have as big of an incentive, right? Because it goes to that board, which is almost all Republicans anyway. Maybe they right. have an incentive for it to not yeah. work there. And, and I think, you know, without preclearance at the federal level now, basically you can push whatever maps you want through and then hold on to them through years of litigation until this is finally decided. And so I think I think where you'll see it the most will be on the congressional level where depending on the growth, depending on how many districts we actually pick up, if there's not a huge undercount in the census, that is where a lot of the fighting will happen because that is what has to be done by lawmakers and can't be done by this board. And if you look at the numbers demographically, I mean, what are the chances that the House uh, Democrats take the House? So that's what, nine districts that... That they would need to pick up. Yeah, and yeah. they've got to defend a few that they picked up last time. I don't know that all of those are going to easily flip back. I think demographically where those districts are at and given the even the increased electorate will have this time around, I think some of those might actually be safe. But I think, you know, like the Dallas County districts, the Republican gerrymander there is falling apart. And I, don't, I think Angie Chen Button might be able to come back, but I think Morgan Meyer is gone. And so there are definitely going to be some pickups. I don't know if it will be enough, but I think from what we've seen, the Democrats used this session really hard in terms of fundraising and organizing to say, look what we could have done if we had these nine more seats. Um, I don't know if they'll actually make it there, but even if you have a thinner margin, you know, if you have like a 76, 74 House, I think that will be a different kind of House of Representatives. All right, I'm going to ask all of us uh, one more question, and that is, sorry, this is coming out of left field. You're not prepared for this. I want to know what the biggest surprise of the session was uh, for each of you. Um, and Emma, maybe I'll start with you because it was your first legislative session. Like, you know, <laughs> coming through a six, five-month slog, whatever we just went through, what was the most surprising thing for you or what were you not expecting that you ended up? And it, could be, it can be something mundane. It doesn't have to be something necessarily political or policy-related. Yeah. I'll, I'll go political okay. with apologies. But so we started off this session, the big three, you know, the governor, the House Speaker, and Lieutenant Governor saying, we're going to stick together. We're going to get these big things done. And everyone is saying... We always say we're going to get these big things done and we never get them done. And by the way, these three men are never going to keep it on the rails. You know, we have a new house speaker in Dennis Bonin, who's kind of known for, you know, not, not being shy. He's kind of known for having a temper. Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick kind of seems to relish a fight. We certainly saw that in 2017. 
Um, I was surprised, you know, we started the session kind of betting when is this campfire sing-along going to end? And I was surprised that it never really did, at least publicly. Right. Yeah, I think um, I have two surprises. The one is that, the first one is that the Democrats kept it together in the Senate to block Whitley, which, you know, I think everyone all session was sort of waiting for it, that, that Somebody block to, to fall apart, yeah. which says a lot about the effectiveness of Democrats in the Senate. Yeah. Um, so that was surprising to me. The The other one was, you know, I remember at the beginning of the session talking about what issues would come up to blow up the floor? Because at the end of the day, even though some of these races are now general election races, there are still going to be primary challengers to some of these Republicans, right? The the last led, the last elections did not do away with the Tea Party movement. And so I was surprised that more things didn't blow up the floor and that they were able to sort of keep it together in that way. I think because of a lot of things dying in the calendars committee, and that was honestly what seemed to be a big driver of it. Malia, you're up. I was surprised about, I mean, just throughout some of the the twisted politics of, you know, people backing things they wouldn't normally back, um, like the lieutenant governor starting off with, with teacher pay raises with something that teachers were, then were really excited about, whereas last session, you know, his thing was private school choice and money to subsidize private schools, and he was, you know, public enemy number one. Um, and so trying to report on some of those uh, twisted politics was was really surprising well to me. My list would probably be, I, I was surprised watching the pretty high-profile defections from the Freedom Caucus mm. uh, in the House was mm -hmm. interesting to me just because their rise to power was so quick or, you know, their, you know over the last couple of sessions, like the rise of this sort of movement and their um, political sway and how like really largely irrelevant they have become in pretty short order, even from persuading their colleagues or putting, you know, their foot on their colleagues' necks, that pressure seemed largely gone. Um, and I think I was also, as someone who has followed Dennis Bonin's career for several, for many sessions now, um, I I'm surprised at what a, a, an um, effective leader he has become and how he really has, you know, must have been in lots of anger management over the years because his temper is was super in check. Um, and I think you saw a lot of this last session too, but just I was really, really impressed that he held his shit together and really led that house all session the way that he did. So it was, you know, for a pretty... I've, I've never lived through a session this boring before. Just yeah, that's to what say. I was going to say. I think <laughs> yeah. it was a boring session overall. Um, and, and that was, I think, you know, probably decent for work-life balance. Uh, <laughs> probably people Aaliyah's other than Aaliyah. Aaliyah's going to movies during the week. Right, right. Like, so. You love to tell people this. Because yeah. I'm so proud and proud. <laughs> yeah, right. Yes. So the press corps thanks you all for keeping your powder dry. But uh, I think we certainly haven't seen the last of very testy legislative sessions in uh, the near future. So... Uh, all right. Well, that's all the time we have this week. Thanks to the Texas A&M University System, Texas Children's Hospital, WGU Texas, and Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Texas, our sponsors this week. An extra special thanks, as always, to Spoon for our theme music. On behalf of Emma, Alexa, Aaliyah, and our producers, Michael, Ray, and Bobby, this is Emily. Thanks for listening. You